passage this morning is Amos 6, and I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calnancy, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those to go into exile." And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with, does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Libo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We sang earlier today of the promise of the Gospel. You called my name and I ran out of the grave, out of the darkness into your glorious day. You called my name and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness into your glorious day. The notion that in coming to Christ, in hearing the call of God, we are freed from darkness or from slavery into a true freedom, into the light uh, that Christ shines in these dark places. The Gospel promises us this freedom, and yet sometimes that's not our experience. What is it to really experience the freedom of the Gospel to be liberated from the ways in which, as John will cast us as, as loving this world, right? the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life are these things that draw upon us. They fill our heads like cobwebs, and so it's difficult to see straight and so how do we come to a place where we better understand and experience the freedom that is offered in Jesus Christ? And how do we see that particularly, or how are we helped by that in coming to a book like Amos, an Old Testament prophet? Well, Paul tells us that the stories of Israel are intended, at least in part, to be examples to us. That we would learn from them so that we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes that Israel has made in the past. And so what do we see Amos driving home to Israel in chapter 6 
of his book that helps us to learn how better to live in light of the gospel, how to experience greater freedom here and now. Amos raises two questions today. Number one is, where do you place your confidence? And the second question he poses to Israel is, where do you place your love? Now, the way he's going to go about addressing these questions is by actually identifying two things that God hates. And the first thing he's going to say is that God hates pride, which is misplaced confidence. The second thing he's going to say is that God hates greed, which is misplaced love. When we place our confidence in the wrong thing, when we place our love and affection in the wrong thing, it alienates us from God. And it pulls us away from Him, and He gets frustrated because we're not able to receive the love that He intends for us. So how do we learn from these mistakes of Israel so that we walk in better fashion and avoid some of these mistakes? Well, let us consider these two hatreds that God has. Right? First of pride, and then of greed. How do we see that Israel is prideful? Well, consider the first three verses of chapter 6. In verse 1, it says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Israel is overconfident in their military security. They've been supreme. They've been unchallenged. They have lots of money pouring in. Everyone's paying tribute. It's kind of a golden day in the life of Israel, and they're feeling pretty good about that. Again, in verse 1, God says, Woe to you, and the notable men of the first of the nations. There's a bit of sarcasm there. You, Israel, the first of the nations. He's declaring woe to those who lead them, to the notable men that they turn to. And in verse 2, God says, Survey the nations around you. Look at these tribes that surround you. And as you do, he asks, Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Of course, Israel at the time would say, yes, we are better than these kingdoms. Our territory is better. We're taking over. That's who we are. We're in a place of confidence and ease, which has produced a certain degree of complacency. Now, the problem comes in verse 3, where God starts to get to uh, the point in terms of their complacency. He says, "Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster... What is he saying? He's saying, yes, you think that you've put far away a day of disaster. You think you're so strong that you can protect yourself and nothing's going to touch you. Right? What could, who could possibly assemble an army that would come across against Israel at this time? But then God says, uh, but bring ne- you bring near the seat of violence. You see, Israel, what you don't understand is happening is you're so strong and you've taken such confidence in your strength You don't think anything that can touch you. But the thing that can most touch you is coming toward you with an unbreakable speed, and that is me. I come in judgment because, you know, kind of a constant refrain of the book of Amos is how dangerous it is to live as if God doesn't exist. Right? We've already, we've mentioned time and again, Israel is going through the motions. They act like they love God. They go to the high places of worship. They make their sacrifices. But God says, you don't know me at all. You're going through motions so that you can go and do what you want to do and spend your money on what you want to spend it on and enjoy your vacations and your good life, which we'll see in just a moment right? as we get into the notion of greed. But this is the danger. You act as if I don't exist. And you think you're safe, but you're not. Because the least safe thing in the universe is me, is Yahweh who comes in judgment against Israel. 
This leads God eventually to use very strong language in verse 8, which you need to look at. Anytime that God swears by Himself, it communicates a particular degree of emphasis, of seriousness, of commitment, because God can't swear by anything higher than by Himself. And in verse 8, He says, The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. God utterly hates this pride of Jacob, this confidence in their strongholds. Why? Because it's led them away from him. They've decided to put more confidence in their strongholds than they have in their relationship with the living God. And so he says, I'm going to do something really hard to you, but it's the best thing for you. I'm going to tear down all your strongholds. I'm going to remind you that you are terribly vulnerable and that there's nothing more reliable or safe to put your confidence in than in me. And so it raises a question for us. Do we, you know, do we have the tendency to put our confidence in the wrong place? Perhaps in our national identity or in other places. Where, where would you locate your temptation to locate your pride? Some of you have watched the HBO drama Newsroom which is about the world of journalism and uh, is written by Aaron Sorkin. In it, Jeff Daniels plays Will McAvoy, who's a bit of a burned-out but very talented journalist. And uh, in the opening scene of the opening episode, he's gathered with a couple of other journalists on a panel. And they're discussing journalism and politics, and, and uh, Will McAvoy is kind of at this place of just being burned out in general. And at a certain point, they go to a Q&A session and a, a young college female gets up and asks a question to the crowd, uh, which is uh, essentially, uh, what, what do you think makes America the greatest nation in the world? That's the question that's posed. And for a bit, McAvoy isn't interested. He just doesn't want to participate in answering the question. But they push him. You've got to give an answer, and the other two panelists have answered. And so he starts by responding to one of the panelists, and then will turn his attention to the girl. And this is what he says. Um, and with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world to have freedom. Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. And he turns to the girl who's raised, stood to ask the question. And yeah, you, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. One of them is there's absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only two categories, number of incarcerated citizens per capita and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you, nonetheless, are without a doubt a member of the worst period, generation period, ever period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, we might take issue with any aspect of McAvoy's picture that he paints of America as a country, and we might be tempted to write it off as liberal propaganda. It is, after all, HBO. But there is something painted, right? A notion that perhaps sometimes we have a bit too much confidence in America. Oh, we are the greatest nation in the world. Well, 
Whether we are or we're not, I'm not really interested in disputing. What I am interested in pointing up is when we start to have that attitude and then begin to excuse our relationship with God in light of the blessings we perceive we are receiving as part of being an, you know, a member of this national identity. The notion is this. Do we allow life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, our national identity, to comfort us in a way that it actually excuses us from being more concerned about our citizenship in heaven? Right? My citizenship is not first and foremost as an American citizen. My citizenship, first and foremost, is a member of the kingdom of God. And if those questions don't come first, and I might say to myself, well, things must be okay. I'm not facing the great challenges that the rest of the world is facing. Right? Then we must be under some kind of blessing from God. He must still be approving of us in some capacity. We'll see how many people go check their car before we actually know whose car it is. It may not be one of yours. It may be across the street. The danger that I'm trying to point up is to say, and what's really interesting is uh, for those of you who have been to India, you see this overseas. And to every place in the world that is in extreme poverty that I've been to, I see this as well. They will say, well, you're from America. God has especially blessed America. You say, well, why do you say that? Because I, I certainly don't think that. Uh, and they say, well, you, uh, we, we hear stories. No one is hungry. Everyone has a house. Everyone has a car. How could you not be especially blessed by God to live in such luxury? And so both from their perspective, but also potentially from ours, if we were to excuse our faithfulness and obedience in light of just assuming we have some perceived blessing, and that is assumed based on our wealth and our luxury, we stand in the exact same spot that Israel stands, right? You hear God saying to Israel, you think the day of this, you put away the day of destruction, the day of threat, it's not facing you. You don't realize how close it is, right? And you've made that presumption because you're rich and happy, not because you're virtuous. And this is the challenge for us to consider. Are we assuming that we are in good stead simply because we're rich and happy and not because we are virtuous? So again, where do you place your pride? Pride can exist anywhere. It might be in our national identity, but it might be for work for you. It might be in your family. It might be in your parenting. And you know this. We're all so ready to recognize it in somebody else. You, if you think for five minutes, you'll think of someone in your life that you know that they put their pride in some aspect of their life, right? And when that aspect of their life came apart, you watched them come apart, right? Somebody who put their pride in their work, and was let go, and they were undone. A parent who put their pride in their kids, and one of their kids went off the rails, and they were undone. Somebody who puts their pride in their marriage, and the marriage falls apart, and they are undone. And on and on it goes, which raises the question, well, okay, where, where does our pride go then? Right? Where does our confidence lie, if not in these earthly realities, and certainly not in some sense of perceived material blessing? Our pride must be placed in Jesus. And if we read Amos through the lens of the gospel, what we get is Paul in 1 Corinthians saying this For considering your calling, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 
So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where is your pride? It has to be located in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I promised you freedom at the beginning. Why is it free or freeing to place your confidence in Jesus Christ? Because if you place your confidence elsewhere, you must ensure that that thing is stable. If it's your work or it's your relationships or if it's your parenting, you are responsible to make sure that that thing remains intact. And you can't. So ultimately, you're going to be undone. There's no freedom. That's slavery. But when your confidence is in Jesus, then whatever happens, right, and scary things will happen, right, you trust in Him to carry you and to see you through that. And that it is in His provision that it has occurred. And you can boast in Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul's language. Jesus is everything for us. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As long as your pride, your boasting, your confidence lies in Jesus Christ, right, you are insured because if He has not spared Himself, then surely He will give you all things. Now, that's the first thing that God hates is misplaced confidence, which is pride. The second thing that God hates here in Amos 6 is greed. And Israel apparently was pretty greedy. We've got some colorful language of the extent of their greed. If you look at verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. I'm going to take that as metaphorical because a bed of ivory sounds terribly painful and uncomfortable. So I think it just means that it's a really rich bed. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Right? Meat was an incredibly rare privilege and luxury in the ancient world. Right? It was extremely expensive. And it's describing a people who can eat meat anytime they want to. In verse 6, you know, the goblet of wine won't do. They drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. Over and over again, you have this description of a people who are wealthy and live in the midst of that luxury. But the problem comes in verse 7. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 6, where Amos says, the problem is that they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Well, what is the ruin of Joseph? You have to think of Joseph's story for a moment, if you know it. And at the beginning of Joseph's story, his brothers hate him. They throw him in a dried-up well, a cistern, debate whether he should live or die. And then they decide to sell him into slavery. So he's, Joseph has moved from a family of resources to a place of abject poverty where he's utterly alone. And what God is saying is, you don't care about the people who suffer because you overindulge. The people who are, set apart, who are experiencing abject poverty, who are utterly alone, who can't affect the most basic decisions in their life because they have no resources, you've chosen to ignore them because you're more concerned with the finest oils and your ivory couches and your bowls of wine. And so what will happen to Israel as a result? God's judgment says, verse 7, they shall be the rich will be the first to go into exile. And then in verses 9 and 10, you've got a very interesting a description, a metaphor of what's going to happen to the relationship between Israel and God Himself. And if you look there, it describes a scene in which you know, uh, the armies are coming, it's bad times, but there's a household of ten individuals, and what Amos says is that all are going to die. Like, this is what's coming to you. But there's one relative who comes in and is preparing the bones for burial, and somebody's coming around to the houses and says, hey, is anybody left here? And the person who's preparing the bone says, no, nobody's left here. But they say, uh, notice at the end of verse 10, 
the response is uh, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Now what an exceptionally surprising statement to come out of the mouth of an Israelite. No, and we must not mention the, the name of the Lord. The Lord is their only hope. The Lord is their salvation. But their relationship has been so estranged because Israel has decided to live for idols other than God that now they cannot call upon Him in need for some kind of salvation. But not only that, He's very dangerous because He comes in judgment. So you have to see that their relationship has been totally, uh, uh, has become mm, uh, not totally broken off, but very uh, estranged and uncomfortable as a result of Israel's willingness to sin. And you know this. You sin at times, right? You go down a path in which you either, you might feel like God isn't doing you right, or you may just be loving your sin. And you say, let's not call upon the name of the Lord. Your Bible doesn't get opened. You don't draw near to Him. You don't pray. It's the same. Your relationship is estranged because you've pursued something different. Your confidence has gone somewhere else or your love has gone somewhere else. And this is what has occurred uh, for Israel. And the saddest part is that not only do they face judgment, but they face judgment alone. It's one thing to go through a hardship or some kind of trial with God being very present. The worst thing, probably in my experience, is to go through that with him being absent. And that is the result of Israel's greed. So why are we greedy? And how do we measure our greed? Greed is very hard to discern, particularly in a very relativistic and relatively rich nation. Right? All you have to do is decide to drive through the next higher-up subdivision. And suddenly you think, well, I'm living more modestly. I'm not spending as lavishly as the people in this neighborhood are. And the money in our culture is incredibly relative. And hear me well, it's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be wealthy. Right? But what Scripture teaches us is that the love of riches is what undoes us. When we love those riches and what we think they can provide for us, then we end up being greedy. Now why do we think that those things will deliver us? Well, we have to at least acknowledge that we're greedy when we stop believing in the provision of God and think that we need to hoard to a certain extent to experience pleasure, to be filled up, to enjoy the world. Now think for a moment how irrational that is, at least from a biblical perspective. If I were to say to you, just imagine for a moment that I was, I'm, I'm like exceptionally wealthy, right? I'm Bill Gates and Elon Musk put together. And I come to you and I say, you, listen, I want you to go uh, learn a few things and live for a week as a homeless person in Dallas. Uh, You live in a box, you get one set of clothes, you have to forage for food. But at the end of that week, I will give you $5 billion. And you, for the rest of your life, you don't have to work unless you want to. You won't lack for anything. You'll have the best of everything. Who's going to turn down that deal? That's a crazy good deal. right? I'll walk to Dallas barefooted for that deal if you're going to give me $5 billion in a week. Right? I can go without food for a week for $5 billion. Right? Makes complete sense. But what if then you know, I start down this road and I get to midway through the week and I say, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm going to pop into uh, to some restaurant. Or I'm going to get a night you know, at uh, the La Quinta. 
and, and shower. Well, suddenly you say, well, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense for what's awaiting you at the end of the week. And you would have to conclude that either I, I don't care or I don't believe that it's actually going to happen. Now, that's just a, a, a comparison all right, of what God promises to us. He asks us to go through this life, which compared to eternity is like a week. And he asks us, he doesn't ask us to give up everything or to live like a homeless person, but he asks us to believe that by losing our life, we find it. And at the end of that, there's no lack of anything. No shortage. Where we have everything that we need, we are filled up with joy and peace. We're in the presence of our Savior. And so it's completely irrational not to bank on that promise unless you don't care or you don't believe that it's actually going to come true. Right? And so to the degree that we find ourselves putting our confidence in other things or putting our love in the wrong things, we must at least be honest with our own hearts and admit this is a revelation to us that we don't really believe. We don't have faith in what God is promising us because if we did, my goodness, how small would be some of the travails that we consider to be big in this world. Right? For it's at the end of the week that we inherit all things. And so we see that our greediness reveals to us a lack of faith. And so again, remember the stories of Israel are meant for our instruction. And if we come in to this story from the other side of the cross, we realize that God has spared nothing to redeem us. That He has become poor that we might become rich. So how then do we live in a way in which we continually identify with that richness, not being tempted by the greed of this world, and being generous? Well, it's something that we work at, and we'll have to continue to work at. But let me say, you know, boys and girls, I could not be more proud of you. You know, you spent four weeks gathering change from anywhere you could find it, and you raised over $700 for the projects that we're participating with in India. And to you as a congregation, this year you funded a team, you funded a well, you funded a kitchen in the boys' home, and you've almost funded Smriti's ministry, right? More than halfway there. That's exceptional. It's a way in which we are saying, we don't want to be Israel. We don't want to be caught up in all of our wealth and forget about those who have no resources and no options, but instead to leverage our wealth on behalf of those in the kingdom. And we're doing that. And by God's grace, we'll continue to grow. It won't simply be, a, you know, we'll always do it. We have to do it every year. You know, you, I, don't, I don't know if you ever asked this, but, or we come around to another year and you're like, India again? You know? But if we don't do that, what's our default? We'll go right back to living in our riches, enjoying our wealth, being negligent of the poor, and not acting as a body that actually is called out of darkness into light. And so as we grow, hopefully it increases. Hopefully we become even more regular. You know, what, what happens, what would it be like if we got to a day in which every household had adopted either a pastor or a child in India? And we needed more projects. We've done some, we got to a place where we'd done so much in India, we needed to start a project in Haiti or something. Man, that would be glorious to, to arrive at that place. And I was encouraged and both challenged by um, some of the posts this week from our team in India that gets back today. I know that they've been posting updates. And know too that there are two videos on there that Ricky and Zach made. And one, you can actually see a mud pass site and Smriti at work in that video. And in the other video, you can see the consecration of the well that you funded, right? That provides clean water to a village that's never had clean water before. Those are exciting things that are done in the name of Jesus and see the gospel pressed forward 
into those dark areas. And this is what Missy wrote. I know our church goal is to raise $20,000 for Smriti for a year for ministry, and now I've walked with her, met her staff, met the children, and I have left buckets of sweat in a smoldering, unair conditioned shack, and that's all she needs, $20,000. So I'm challenging each of you who read this to spread the word. I would love for her work to be funded before our plane lands on Sunday evening. We built a well, which I can't wait to see, which she has seen. For what I hear, we have met the kitchen goal for the boys' home, true. Sunday morning, take 30, so this is how she's challenging us to feel what Smurdy goes through. Sunday morning, take 30 of our kids and four or five adults and go cram in the office. Not Ryan's office, but the room with the printer and squeeze out a little more from your budget. What's Missy saying? If you actually go and watch the video on the city, you'll see that Smurdy runs her ministry out of these very small rooms that are packed with kids and the adults hardly have room to move. And it is, yes, unbelievably hot. So she's saying take 30 kids and four adults and go try to function in that little room near the office and you'll see what she's trying to accomplish. And we would like to fund her in the course of the year or for a year for her to carry out her ministry. And so Missy says, join this fierce woman in spreading the light in India. I pray one day there is a Smriti chapel where Kali once stood. I'm crying, I am undone, but I'm awakened. Praise Jesus. Indeed, praise Jesus. Now why is Missy awakened? Because she's participating in the very call to, that was the call of God to Israel, that they should be a people of generosity and caring for the poor, and the call to us that we should be a people of generosity. As God has been generous to us in Jesus Christ, God has called us to be generous towards the poor. Common would say it's a sign of a true church that they take care of uh, and make efforts to care for the poor. And so, as we, I asked you, where is your confidence? I would ask you, where is your love? Right? If misplaced love is greed, right, where do you pl- have a tendency to place your love? And if you are greedy for something, whether it be material possessions or something else, you will consume that which you're greedy after, and it will never fill you up. Because only Jesus can actually fill you. And this is the irony of it all. In verse 12, God tries to point out to Israel the ridiculousness of their decision. And he says, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? And of course, the notion in the ancient world is ridiculous. You would never run a horse on rocks. It would break its leg. And you wouldn't plow with oxen on rocks without clearing the rocks for the same reason. But God says, but you... You've placed your confidence in the wrong thing and you've placed your love in the wrong thing. And you inevitably will break your leg because it's as foolish as running a horse on rocks. Why put your confidence in love anywhere but at this table, the table of the one who loves you the most? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you have shined light into darkness and you have done that because you have entered the darkness yourself. Not only have you entered it, but you allowed yourself to be consumed by it that we might be free. Goodness, may all praise and glory and laud and honor be due your name. We thank you for the blood that flows and cleanses us. We thank you uh, for this table and pray that you would nourish us and help remind us, wake us up. Uh, We are as foolish as as running a horse on rocks when we place our confidence in the strongholds of this world. And we are doing the same when we place our love in the uh, material things that we think will fill us up in this world. Help us to place our confidence and our love solely 
in and upon you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.